0: Welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, the Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is Episode 2, Failure. In the last episode, I set the background up to the main events that are coming. The spark had been provided. For the French, it was the long-term systematic poverty compounded by the nation's mismanagement of its fiscal, political, and societal affairs. For the Chinese, it was the undefined, rough path to socialism, then to communism, and lack of economic progress and social welfare. In this episode, both nations, if they desired to change paths and ameliorate deteriorating conditions, would need to find new answers and solutions and implement new sensible measures before it would be too late to do so. Chaos and uncertainty never seem to be good goals the optimism that came with King Louis XVI's ascension was short-lived. It seems to me the king was cursed. Almost immediately after taking the throne, issues with England were beginning again. France wanted revenge against England, humiliating defeat in the Seven Years' War. England was knee-deep and escalating tensions with its North American colonies. By 1776, French officials saw their opportunity at revenge and persuaded the king to intervene against England. By 1778, France and the 13 colonies agreed to an alliance, and by 1783, France had their revenge and saw England lose its 13 colonies. France had also regained some of its lost prestige with its assistance to the Americans. Unexpectedly, though, to the French, for reasons that go beyond the scope of this podcast, she did not receive an appreciable increase as she had hoped in trade business from the Americans. Ominously, and not unexpectedly, the American war had cost France over one, me, one million livres. I understand at that time, one levy was worth about one pound of silver. So it was an enormous expense, exacerbated by an already shaky French financial situation. The king's reaction was to force even more taxes on his subjects. By 1780, people in France would need twice as much money to survive than they would have needed 50 years before. In 1962, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet Union, England, and the USA tried to restrict the production of nuclear weapons by other nations. China was one of those other nations. Nikita Khrushchev had promised Mao Zedong help in developing an atomic bomb. And now, with this development, Mao saw the restrictions to isolate China and deny her the technology as a betrayal. During the CCP's 7,000 cadre conference in Beijing in January 1962, Mao's star was at its lowest. At the conference, Mao, nevertheless, spoke and admonished the group that there were some members of the CCP that pretended they were good, loyal communists, but instead they were phonies and part of the capitalist and bourgeoisie. He was hinting at a cleansing of the party cadre. Other than that, Mao was on his best behavior. He was forced to even accept some of the responsibility for the Great Leap Forward. As a result of the failures of the Great Leap Forward, and despite his alleged promise to stay out of state affairs, Mao launched the Socialist Education Campaign, or known as the Four Cleanups Campaign, from 1963 to 1966. The campaign's goal was to cleanse politics, economy, organization, and ideology. To do that, Mao required intellectuals to go to the countryside, to be re-educated by peasants. The latest effort would punish over 5 million party members. The campaign was meant to teach people to appreciate the benefits of socialism and collectivism. Mao also used it to purge the CCP of his enemies. No one was immune from the accusation they were a capitalist rotor or some other synonymous pejorative term. The vice chair, Liu Shaoqi, assisted Mao with the campaign and the party purges. He was desperately trying to prove to Mao that he was a worthy successor. But Mao would continue to to shy away from Liu Shaoqi. Mao did not trust him. Needless to say, the Four Cleanups campaign was another failure. After the fiscal mess following France's intervention in the U.S. colonies, inflation was eroding real wages. The optimism that followed Louis XVI to the throne was quickly dissolving. The poor grew poor and more numerous. The the wealthy grew in number two, and so was the distance between the poor and the wealthy. Naturally, indignation and resentment grew. The king's decision to help the Americans was, at the time it was made, not not a popular decision with all. One person in particular was opposed, the nation's comptroller-general. He argued the intervention would destroy any chance for the nation to do necessary fiscal reforms, and without those reforms, would bankrupt the nation. Despite this plea, in 1776, the king appointed Jacques Necker, a Swiss-born Frenchman, as the director of the treasury. Necker offered the king a less austere fiscal policy. France, under Necker's policy, could prosecute the American war without raising taxes. Necker claimed the nation's ordinary income and expenditures could be balanced by reorganizing the budget, and so the war was financed entirely on loans, and the interest payments would be paid with funds left after his fiscal and budget reorganizations. To counter his critics, he went to the extraordinary and unusual length by publishing the budget, something that had never been done before. The royal budget was always a secret, and he hoped by publishing it, he could prove he had nothing to hide and assuage his critics. In 1781, he published it the Comme de or Report to the King. In it, he made the dubious claim of a 10 million livres surplus when, in actuality, he hid a 46 million livres deficit. Nevertheless, publishing seemed to largely work. But there were still others not fooled. In one of those not- Intended for consequences and Necker's reorganization, he had stepped on Queen Marie Antoinette's feet and she applied political pressure on the king and forced Necker's resignation. Nevertheless, Necker remained a popular figure with many in France. Throughout the mid-1960s, matters with the Soviet Union were no better even after Nikita Khrushchev was removed from power in October of 1964 after a bloodless coup. He was replaced by Leonid Brezhnev. China hoped for a better relationship with the Kremlin. It sent a welcoming envoy to Moscow. But at an event in Russia, attended by the Chinese envoys, a Soviet official strongly hinted that China should rid herself of Mao Zedong, as the Soviets did with Khrushchev. I think the narrative that comes through loud and clear in China from the 1950s and 1960s is Mao's fixation that he had to create the perfect communist utopia. It was becoming increasingly evident that Mao Zedong believed he had to remold people's thoughts. While Communist China had eliminated the bourgeoisie, Mao thought the problem was that bourgeois thought still existed. Bourgeois thought, he believed, was the reason the CCP's top cadre were not entirely committed to the socialist cause. Mao targeted the vice chair, Liu Shaoqi, as one of the party's top cadre that threatened the socialist campaign. Mao convinced himself that comrade Liu Shaoqi was a traitor to the revolution. Liu Shaoqi had avoided forcing the mass movement of the people that Mao so passionately believed was necessary to change the hearts and minds of the people. Mao Zedong concluded that many of his party members were less committed than before to the revolutionary spirit and cause that was needed to push the nation further into the communist tent. The Chinese Revolution was dying, so Mao thought, because of conservative large bureaucracy and too many taking the capitalist road. Fearing that China was headed in the same direction as the Soviet Union, Mao needed to do something to renew the spirit of the Chinese Revolution. After the French king dismissed Jacques Necker, the king appointed Charles-Alexandre de Galon in November 1783, to Comptroller General. Immediately, Gallon felt he had no choice but to continue borrowing money for the war. But by 1785, doubts began to surface about the fiscal wisdom of continuing to borrow money. Gallon had to explain that there would be a 112 million livres deficit which was a quarter of the nation's expected income. So, Gallon proposed a drastic three-part plan to address the fiscal crisis. First, he would propose an unpopular new tax, levied on all landowners with no exceptions. If imposed, it would be the first direct tax on the clergy and the nobles. The land tax would be augmented by a whole range of other innovations in taxes as well as improve the administration of the budget. The second part of his plan was economic stimulation. The third part of his plan was intended to instill confidence so the nation could still borrow money. Galone further proposed that his plan be first reviewed by some reviewing body or assembly so a consensus would be found. The obvious form for this consensus was the Estates General. Gallon, however, rejected the idea of the Estates General as it was unwieldy and unpredictable. After all, the Estates General was a rarely used option, and it was last used in the year 1614 it consisted of an equal number of representatives and three estates. The first estate consisted of the clergy, the second estate consisted of the nobles, and the third estate consisted of the middle class. Each estate had one vote each for any matter under consideration. But instead of the Estates General, Gallone chose another vehicle, one that was not entirely unprecedented. Mao Zedong, after the failures of the Great Leap Forward and the Four Cleanups Campaign, was planning his next move. He adopted four goals. Replace his designated successors with leaders more faithful to his way of thinking Renew the vision of the CCP, provide Chinese youth with a revolutionary experience, and make changes to educational, healthcare, and cultural systems. Mao carefully concealed his next move so as not to raise alarms. Despite the lofty goals, it is safe to assume that in Mao's impending purification movement, if the cost of that movement were some CCP members that were in his way, that would be a necessary expense. Mao knew that party leaders were planning to marginalize him, so he made his appeal directly to the people that supported him. He asked them to join him in a culture revolution. It was an attempt by an aging dictator to reassert control over the CCP behind the smokescreen screen of a mass movement. Charles Alexander de Cologne proposed an assembly of notables that they would be convened to approve his aggressive three-part fiscal plan. And the nobles that would be chosen for this would be the top nobles. In December 1786, Louis XVI authorized the assembly of the notables. It would convene on January 29, 1787, to consider the king's view on the reforms that had been proposed. And because the notables were handpicked by the king, it should be a sure thing, right? But... As soon as the nobles met and listened to Gallone's plan, it was clear they would not be the rubber stamp he expected. After all, nobles historically did not pay taxes. It was clear Gallone's lack of political experience, and there may have also been some dislike of him by some members of the assembly, was one of the great fails that led up to the revolution. Gallone glaringly had overlooked or miscalculated the forces he was unleashing. This was a genie that could not be put back into the bottle once it was let out. The Assembly of Notables argued that Neckes' 1781 report to the king achieved a surplus without new taxation. So any deficiencies were Gallone's problem. The problem must have been Gallone's fault, they thought. Instead, the Assembly of Notables demanded that the king call the estates general. Let me say this. The Notables probably did not perceive then that their rejection of Gallone's plan would lead to revolution had they maybe there would have been a different result nevertheless the king dismissed the assembly and galone one could argue i suppose this was the beginning of the french revolution but there is more to make matters worse the winter of 1788 was particularly severe it resulted in a broad famine and starvation. Rising bread prices brought violent riots to Paris. This soured the nation's mood even more. France was broke from its mismanagement, questionable spending, corruption, and foreign wars. The nobility refused to pay more taxes, and the king's avenues to raise more revenue were limited. The peasants were taxed enough and had no more to give. The king lived in virtual isolation, but he he even sensed the urgency. He and the nation desperately needed money. The coming culture revolution, on an ideological level, was focused on class struggle, clearing the way, Mao hoped, for his communist utopia. It would be a bold project to eradicate all traces of the past. He would wage war on what he called reactionary bourgeois ideology. He declared that just as the transition from capitalism to socialism needed a revolution, so did the transition from socialism to communism. He would try to create a pure communist state free of old ideas, old customs, old habits, and old culture. He also wanted to reclaim control of the CCP. If that required setting some personal scores or settling some personal scores with some of his enemies and friends, so be it. Mao did not distinguish between the next mass movement from reclaiming party control. Both were needed to achieve his goal. Mao was, in a real sense, the revolution. King Louis XVI finally convened the Estates General. It would begin in May 1789. What had started out as a dispute over proposed tax reforms metastasized into a political and constitutional crisis and movement, the bankruptcy of the monarchy extended beyond the fiscal matters but into political and cultural matters too. The factors facing France at the brink of the meeting of the estates general were poor economic conditions, inequitable taxation, the Roman Catholic Church's overreach and overtaxation of its subjects, prolificate spending and consumption by the nobles and the monarchy and the resentment that caused, high unemployment, widespread famine and malnutrition, and the monarchy's inability to effectively deal with any of the issues. The French citizens had watched and admired the revolution and its leaders in the USA. It was now the Anxin regime's turn to be tested. It is clear both nations had failed to achieve their goals and had failed to address their issues and failures. Next episode I begin where I left where I've left off. The Cultural Revolution begins in China, the French Revolution begins in France. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.